laughter cannot be developed in ease and quiet. Only through experience of trial and suffering can the soul be strengthened, ambition inspired, and success achieved. Helen Keller Hi there, and welcome to Creativity, Montessori, and the Meaning of Life. I'm your host, Robin Norgren, and you can find me all over the web under at Robin underscore Norgren or at UBU for Life. I'd like to start um, today with a poetry exercise that is talked about in the book Inner Excavation by Liz Lamoureux. Her activity is called Creating a Word Toolbox. A favorite book that makes poetry accessible is Poem Crazy by Susan Woolridge. I was lucky enough to take a class from Susan in 2007. After her workshop, I began to realize that a writer can have a toolbox of words available to make the writing experience just a little bit easier. This toolbox doesn't refer to the words we carry around in our heads at any given moment. Instead, this toolbox can come in the form of lists of words, pages literally torn out of old dictionaries, journals filled with phrases. This toolbox becomes a, a mine holding just the right word that can lead us to just the right phrase to begin a poem. Your task would be to gather words and create a word toolbox. Grab a book off your bookshelf. The first one you see is a good place to start. Open to random pages and write down a word or two from each page. It is a good idea to let your eyes jump from word to word to find the word that stands out to you. Write down at least 20 words. Look at your word list. Is it interesting to you? Do the words jump out? Do they make you think? Do you feel a desire to pick up your pencil and write? If not, I invite you to try this exercise again, perhaps with another book. This time, look for words that are juicy, beautiful, messy, sticky, solid. Look for words that invite images of action and stillness. Look for words that twirl around on your tongue. Write down the word that scares you, makes you smile, and invites you to say, yes. Do not be afraid of the words you do not know. Add it to your list. Begin to collect your words in an accessible location. Maybe take them in your journal, gather them in a document on your computer, or create a special word toolbox from an old cigar box or basket. The key is to be able to find them quickly when you want to write. Think about other places where you might find words. Go to, go to a thrift store, buy an old dictionary. When you sit down to write, rip out a page. Really, you can do it. And use that as your word list. Visit the library, make word lists from books you find there. When you're finished with the magazine, rip out a few articles, grab a favorite pen, and circle the words that stand out to you in the articles. 
As you write down your words, I invite you to pause before capturing an entire phrase verbatim because that phrase really belongs to the author of whatever you're reading. The first time I remember really thinking about poetry was when I read Carl Sandburg's poem, Fog in the Fourth Grade. I recall attempting to visualize fog arriving like cat's feet. But as a northern Indiana girl, I struggled with this image. To me, fog was thick and never-ending and really meant really being quiet in the back seat as one of my parents drove at night. Now living in the Pacific Northwest, I can close my eyes and see fog stepping quickly, lightly, yet solidly across the Puget Sound. And I smile with an understanding of Sandbird's choice of words. Poetry continued to come in and out of my life in positive ways. An eighth grade girl's attempt to make sense of the world through poetry, a teenager memorizing Langston Hughes' theme for English B. Until my senior year in high school, when it suddenly seemed inaccessible and, well, hard to understand. Poetry, or at least academic poetry, and I took a break. Then in my late 20s, I read Derek Walcott's poem, Love After Love, and Everything Shifted. This poem held up a mirror and seemed to say, look closer. I soon found myself in the poetry section of a local bookstore sitting on the floor with Mary Oliver, Sharon Olds, Billy Collins, and again I heard the whispers, you are not alone. Through the encouragement of an online community of others who appreciated, wrote, and read poetry, I began writing poems as part of my writing practice. I also started sharing some of them on my blog. Now this is the part where I am concerned I might lose you. What I've learned is that many people have had experiences like I did in high school, where poetry simply becomes inaccessible. We read a poem and feel like we just don't get it. Then a teacher tells us what the poem is supposed to mean and we sit there thinking, seriously, I do not get poetry. If this sounds like your experience, please know you're in the right place. When I explained to Susan Tunnell that I wanted her to gather words to create a poem for this chapter, she surprised me with the explanation she already does this. And before she writes, she gathers words from old vintage book collections to use as prompts and inspiration for her writing. Lodging of the Heart is Susan's poem inspired by collected words. Finding words in unexpected places is a great way not only to bring words you might not use on a regular basis, but it also pushes you to find another way to say a phrase or evoke a feeling. Imagine finding words in a chemistry textbook or your child's favorite book or a cooking magazine. Using a vintage book might reintroduce you to words you haven't heard or used since your childhood or teach you words from your child, the childhoods of your grandparents. Now here's Susan Tuttle's poem, Lodging of the Heart. Cloaked in blessed guard, guard is the lodging of the heart, a home of deep and steady joy, where pain is mere scrawls etched on the walls of spirit, self-deceiving fear that bows to imagined superiors, 
as she turns her face inward toward stillness. She glimpses worth and wishes self-denied, shimmering below the current, like gold coins carved with enchanted things like butterflies, garlands, and stars. She recognizes them as her birthright, all hers, waiting to be grasped and embraced. This is an excerpt from the book Montessori Learning in the 21st Century by M. Shannon Helfrich, and it's on the sensitive period for movement. The nature of the human hand makes the significance of the free hand even more important. The hand is much more than just an instrument freed from the needs of locomotion and now available to explore the world. The hand becomes the instrument of the mind. The human is only the only species designed exclusively to use the thumb and fingers as we do, the opposable thumb. And the human is the only species that uses the hand independent of the feet. From the earliest cultural societies, the human has sought to use the hands to express herself and to shape the world for personal use. The evidence of these efforts is reflected in the artifacts left behind. The first tools, paintings in caves, elaborate tombs and writings. We see that the skill of the human hands is bound up with the development of the mind. Acknowledging the importance of the hand, Dr. Montessori wrote, we may say that man's hand has followed his intellect, his spiritual life and his emotions, and the marks that is left behind betray his presence. But even without this psychological view of things, we can see that all the changes in man's environment are brought about by his hands. Really, it seems as if the whole business of intelligence is to guide their work. It is thanks to the hand, the companion of the mind, that civilization has arisen. In essence, the tools of movements, the hands and feet, are being prepared simultaneously but independently. While a child practices the coordination of gross motor movements in order to move the body through space, the hand is practicing the art of gripping and grasping. Dr. Wilson defines grip as the ability to flex the finger joints and hold them in that position against the pull of the full weight of the body. A toddler practices a great variety of fine motor movements since the hand will put the child in contact with the physical elements of the natural world. The hand that begins to grasp with a death grip is about at about six months of age becomes a refined instrument around four and a half years old. This is not to be confused with the reflective grasp that is present a few weeks after birth, which disappears until it's replaced by this intentional grasp. The hand masters all the various types of grips, precision grips, such as the pincer grip and the pencil grip, power grips, such as the squeeze grip and the grasping grip, and hook grips, such as the suitcase grip. Children seek opportunities to apply these movements to simple activities of dressing, eating, caring for objects in their surrounding world. 
Eventually, a child refines the hand as the instrument capable of handwriting and manipulating small objects. The sensitive period for movement is not concluded once a child is mobile and the hands are free. This is insufficient for the needs of the human psyche. The child spends considerable injury, uh, energy over the next two to three years mastering the mechanisms related to movement. It is during this extended period of time that a child's Vertralbo column strengthens and the muscles of the body coordinate with intended movements. The harmonious functioning of the brain, the nerve cells, and the muscles must be created. The integration of the personality, as Dr. Montessori calls it, occurs through the child's active practice and later application of movement. It might seem a straightforward matter of strengthening the muscles. However, this process goes far beyond mere strengthening. It goes to the heart of coordination. A child practices movements with a meaningful context, a purposeful activity, and the muscles become more adept at responding accurately and automatically to the brain's messages. An activity becomes purposeful when it encompasses an activity that can be repeated over and over. In addition, the activity must be connected with something that a child observes other human beings doing as a natural part of life. The connection here is powerful. A child discovers that the activities she has practiced and refined now has logical applications within the natural environment. Prior to this logical connection, children intuit all aspects of human activity. A child is drawn naturally to practice the movements that are observed as part of everyday life. Ultimately, a child's strongest motivation comes from the desire to become like other humans she observes. She will apply movements in the same manner and in the same context that she has observed in adults. Thanks so much for stopping by. I hope you enjoyed this, con this podcast and that you're starting to see the integration between these three main pieces of what we do in life, Montessori, creativity, and what it all means in how we walk through the world. If you'd like to find any of my other work, you can look on Instagram under at Robin underscore Norgren or under UBU for life, all words spelled out. This reading is from Ephesians 2, 7 through 10, the New Living Translation. Now God has us where he wants us with all the time in this world and the next, to shower grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Saving is all his idea and all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish, and we don't play a major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. No, we neither make nor save ourselves, God does both by making and saving. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does. 
the good work he has already gotten ready for us to do. Work we had better be doing.